0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about drugs, or what I would call the war on just say no. You see, we better learn to say much more than just that. With the three-word slogan, Just Say No, the Reagan administration betrayed the American people and left an entire generation, my generation, at risk. I remember hearing Nancy Reagan utter that catchphrase on television in the early 1980s, and I lingered on the word no in response. In fact, I lingered on it so long, I had to catch my breath. There are two major problems with the Reagan approach. One is ignorance. And the other is inadequate harm reduction. And since the logo that I'm using for this program on iTunes has drugs in the title, it's not just politics, sex, and religion, I figure it's about time I got to the topic. But in the interest of full disclosure, let me tell you that I'm getting to the topic with very little direct information. I think I know quite a bit about politics in America, although perhaps not the world. I have uh, certainly an ongoing case study when it comes to human sexuality that I rely on quite heavily to inform my views. And as far as religion goes, I think I've made myself clear there as well. When it comes to drugs, though, I have no direct experience. Absolutely zero. Did I accomplish this because I was persuaded by Nancy Reagan and others in the Reagan administration to just say no? No. I accomplished this by taking the exact opposite approach. Becoming informed, helping me to leverage that information to make wise decisions about consequences and incentives. As I mentioned when talking about sex education, I believe that knowledge is the key to wise decisions. Knowledge is power. In many cases, though, the Just Say No campaign sought to invest power in the simplicity of ignorance. After all, as the thought goes, if you abstain from something, then you never really have to understand what it is you're abstaining from. Or do you? The question I always raised concerned the importance of knowing what you are saying no to, if only to avoid being duped, or perhaps doped. Some of the adults that I encountered suggested that just uh, just say no and drugs education were not incompatible, that you could have a good mix of the information that I was pushing for and just say no at the same time. But while that might logically be true, on a practical level, I encountered lots of problems with it. And the problems that I found were not unlike the way abstinence has been used in sex education. We saw how quickly the abstinence plus model was transformed into an abstinence only model based solely on who was in the White House. And none of this talk even begins to scratch the surface of the topic of harm reduction. If Reagan policies were passive aggressively opposed to drugs education, They were openly hostile to ideas of harm reduction. And although I'm not an expert in that area, I'm going to take a shot at it. But first, let me begin with my personal experience of drugs education and how drugs education played out when I was in high school. One of the components of my honors English class when I was right at the beginning of high school, right at that end of junior high, beginning of high school age, was the idea of speech and the role speech making plays in English education. So uh, it's one thing to take an English course where you're learning the parts of speech and grammar. It's another thing to take an English course where you're reading the giants of English and American literature. It's another thing, though, to be able to convey that knowledge back. So you hit that point where you're beginning to do essay writing. You're beginning to learn how to do research and to document the research with a bibliography. But the other component that was introduced to me really for the first time in a major way in this class was the idea of using English and the communication of English back In speech giving. So the topic that I chose, I never dreamed would be as controversial as it was. I really was not trying to upset the apple cart. I didn't really think that it was necessary for my parents to have a conversation with the principal over the over the thing. And it also seemed to me that if I was going to spend a lot of time doing research and giving a big speech, that the speech might as well be relevant, might as well be something that was going to be useful uh, to me personally and to my fellow students as well. And so the topic I chose was drugs or as it turned out to be the case based on the reaction I got from some of the faculty drugs as if something horribly evil was being conveyed and communicated well okay what did i do i decided that the wise move was to be able to go back to the uh, all the core material that i could find legally of course and come back with a speech that said okay here are all the major drugs that are in available in our area here's the things you hear about from other students, from newspapers, from government agencies of what's out there in our community. Here is what those things are called, what those particular drugs truly are, what they do to you, what could potentially be called their, their incentive for use. I don't want to call it a, a positive impact, but if you had to put it on a scale like that, you'd have to say, well, people who use these are using these for a reason, and this is the reason that they're using them. So what are they getting out of it? But then also, from the perspective of dependency and uh, side effects and other unintended consequences what 's the negative side of the scale what 's the what 's the bad stuff that 's going to happen so uh, a little bit of a little bit of the incentive talk, a little bit of the consequences talk now for a time, I think it would have been perhaps very controversial had I gone in with a lot of visual aids and <clears throat> obtained today it would be so easy just go online, go to the internet, get the pictures but back then it would have required much more uh, much more intense library work and turning those images into posters and presenting those posters to students. Because the things that my parents were being asked to um, certify, to you know, kind of agree with me that I wasn't doing, was that I wasn't giving a big uh, drug ads, uh, drug advertisement. The concern, I guess, of the school was that this kind of information placed in the hands of students would only encourage students to use drugs. Now, let's compare this to the sex education idea uh, from the previous show I did, Uh, and you can see why this is the next topic I'm deciding to hit, because the sex education concept is if you give Junior a condom, he's going to go use that thing, and um, that it's not possible to even conceive of a situation where it's enough for Junior to understand what it is and what what it's for, what the consequences are if you do use it, what the consequences are if you don't use it, and here, very similar concept. It was incredibly naive. I can't even begin to express how naive the idea was, not just of my school, but also of my own parents, that I wouldn't encounter all of these controlled substances fairly freely and easily. That I was going to have to be equipped to say no. And in my mind, the best way for me to be equipped to say no was to know exactly what it was I was saying no to. To be able to know it when I saw it, know it when I smelled it, when I tasted it, which hopefully would never happen, that it wouldn't get to that point. So that was kind of my mentality, and I went through the list. I mean, we covered things that I actually didn't think I would ever encounter in high school, uh, from, from heroin or pure codeine or pure morphine, all the way down to the things that I actually would have encountered in high school pretty readily had I, had I opened myself up to it, had I been a seeker of it, things like marijuana, hashish, uh, cocaine, crack, all those sorts of things and kind of went through the list of each one of them, and as honestly and factually as I possibly could, sort of made the necessary comparisons. And that's where I ran into trouble, because my parents, uh, even beyond whatever the school's concerns might be, were very upset about the idea that I might be talking about certain drugs as having really no discernible addictive qualities. Because to my parents, and I suppose on some level this must have made sense, maybe it still makes sense today, because, you know, I'm a parent as well, and I'll try to get back to that idea a little later on and speak to it from, from the perspective of here we are years later and now I'm a parent. But it seemed to me that they were using some of the most addictive substances out there. And their concerns were less about whether I might use a legal substance, although they were not a big fan of the idea of, of tobacco use. I would say that alcohol didn't seem to be as big of a concern for them. However, they saw any one of the other drugs that were available on the market as being a gateway so you get that old gateway concept the idea that um, somehow alcohol and tobacco in their minds were not gateways to anything and i think a lot of that was because they were using it and they were making a legality versus illegality kind of a distinction but the truth be known is and i told them this flat out you know it's kind of you know, my nature i think if you've listened to enough of these shows you can kind of anticipate how i how i might handle things and i again genuinely try not to be a hypocrite i'm Pretty much the same way with my family, both uh, my current family and when I was a kid with my family, that I am on this show. I just basically said, I don't know anybody who uses tobacco who doesn't also use marijuana. In my age group, I didn't encounter a lot of people who just smoked tobacco. I think that at some point along the way, I probably did encounter some people who very casually used marijuana but not tobacco. Now, the difference there was I was not a user of anything, I sort of made a decision perhaps even as young as age four or five, that um, I, was, I didn't want nothing to do with smoking. You know, when you're sitting in a car in the American South during the heart of the summer when it's brutally hot outside and one part of you wants to roll down the window so you can get the cigarette and pipe smoke out of your, out of your lungs, out of your face, out of your car... But the other part of you is really desperate to get to get that air conditioning going. Because if you think about your traditional American station wagon, you know, the kind of vehicle that uh, the first vacation movie has uh, Clark Griswold and his family traveling in, if you're in the furthest back part of that vehicle and the only air conditioner that there is is, is right up there on the dashboard, the part of you that wants to roll down a window and let, and let smoke get out of your face, tends to be overpowered a little bit by the part of you that wants to keep the car as cool as you possibly can. And it was somewhere during one of those long car trips that I think I decided that I'm not going to smoke anything. <clears throat> if smoking is the delivery vehicle for any sort of substance that I might be interested in trying, legal or illegal, I'm out. I just I don't have the lung capacity for it, and I certainly don't have the patience and tolerance for it, because I've been a receiver of an incredibly intense dosage of secondhand smoke to have said, hey, enough is enough. And you know, that played to my advantage because one of the other problems that I think you encounter when you're a kid is that if your disposable income is not real high and you begin looking at something that you may start doing but then have to continue doing on a regular basis, if you don't have the money to throw <clears throat> at packs of cigarettes, uh, you're just not going to start doing it because once you start doing it, you've got a financial commitment that's going to be awfully hard to deal with. It's not going to just go away on its own. And the fact that I was in a controlled situation in terms of my own financial income, especially in the first part of high school, that also helped as well because I didn't want to be the kind of person who was participating in, again, whether legal or illegal activities where I couldn't pay my own way. And certainly when it came to the kinds of drugs that I saw people using, even drugs like marijuana, I couldn't afford to to play that game. So I chose not to play that game. So as that played out, I ended up being a person who just ended up never using an illegal drug. And so I was speaking not from the perspective of I want to advertise what's out there and kind of tell you what the good stuff is and what the bad stuff is. Instead, it was me speaking from the perspective of here's everything that you need to know to know what you need to know to say either yes or no to a decision and do it wisely. Do it intelligently. Do it with knowledge and not just by guesswork because I saw way too much experimentation going on but the person doing the experimenting was not being experimental at all. They were failing to use the scientific method no matter which way you might define the scientific method. They were simply out there throwing stuff on the wall and seeing if it would stick. It was definitely unworthy of anything that I might consider an intellectual exercise. So I got permission to give this talk and I did give the talk and what I think was probably supposed to be a five-minute speech, you know, I just don't, I don't, I'm just do not i not the guy who has a five-minute speech in me, and this has been true all the way back to elementary school or certainly to junior high school. If I spend the effort and the energy to get the information and then try to turn that information into something meaningful, it's either going to be two minutes max, three minutes max, or it's going to be closer to 15, or maybe even longer. It's just how I am. And with the topic that I chose to tackle, there was just too much information, and it didn't make sense to try to do it halfway. Now, as a parent, you might be aghast at this idea, you know, that why don't you just tell your kids uh, to just say no? Um, you heard the just say no message from the first lady of the United States of America, and you can't really prove that it had no impact on you, you know? Well, there's a couple of reasons why I think it's not enough to just say, hey, knows the answer no matter what it is you're being offered. First, I don't think anybody in my school, including me in that freshman year, really understood exactly how big the environment was. So I want to tell a couple quick stories about kind of the state of my high school, and I want to put my high school in perspective before I do it. It was a city school. So you're talking about a large, standard metropolitan statistical area, one of of the United States' 50 biggest cities. So you're not talking about a small town. And we weren't off in the suburbs. We weren't in a private school environment. We weren't cloistered in any way. But we also weren't inner city. The location of my school was in the quote-unquote nice part of town. I would describe it as the old nice part of town. And my uh, my wife, my, who I hadn't even met yet at this stage, was in kind of the new nice part of town. So uh, either way, you got you got an upper-middle-class environment going on here, which means that you have a lot of kids with disposable income. And uh, my sophomore year, working for the school newspaper kind of occurred to me that it might not be a bad idea for us to try to gauge this thing. Because I knew I was encountering a lot of people in the band, in the cafeteria, after school, wherever, who were using some form of illegal drug. And I was beginning to get the impression that I was in a minority. That I, I began to get the impression that at least with the, with the people I associated with most often, I was the exception. So as a school newspaper, me and a couple of other reporters did a little survey. It was a very informal survey. One of the things I learned from how the administration of my uh, junior high school handled the thought of a student in one class giving a drug speech to just 20 other kids, we figured, hey, we better do this kind of information gathering very quietly, because even asking this question is likely to land us in the principal's office. So we did a very quiet, informal survey, and it was mainly focused just on our our graduating class, we didn't feel like we were going to get a lot of good information from juniors and seniors, but if we were dealing with just the class I was in, so all of us being essentially the same age, we might get some good information back. And if I'm not mistaken, the numbers came back as being something like 37 percent. It was more than a third of my classmates either had or were still using some form of illegal drug. So you get that. Uh, at first, it made me feel better. Because I wasn't in an absolute minority. But it also kind of bore out my thought, even going back all the way to uh, the freshman year, that there was enough reason to think that there was a customer for this market, that it wasn't just an invisible thing. And I think probably the first time somebody that I knew and trusted offered me marijuana was in eighth grade. So, again, I probably had been saying no before Nancy Reagan was even telling me I should. The other story that I wanted to tell, just to give a sense of kind of where my feelings are about it, because, yeah, I'm not a, I, what was the term we would have used back in high school would have been a narc, never a narc, not the kind of person who was looking to, um, you know, be some sort of caped crusader and uh, wipe out, you know, wipe out all of the drug abuse. It seemed to me to be too big of a problem to solve. It also seemed to me to be a problem that it wasn't necessarily appropriate for me to be attempting to solve. It, in in one way or another, kind of was not my problem. On the negative side, I can remember an event where the rock group Yes was in town. and I was a big fan of Yes. I really enjoyed their music. And I'd seen them the year before, and I got to see them like two years in a row. And the second time that I went to see them was during the school year. Unlike the time before, where it was basically me and my brother and some of his college friends going off to see a show, this one was happening where my friends in school were aware of the show... And some of us were going to the same concert, not together, but going to the same concert. I think I was still too young to drive, but some of the other folks were old enough that they could manage their own transportation, and we ended up going independently. But uh, one particular girl, I, I recall, I think her name was Laura, was planning to go to the show, big, big Yes fan, bigger Yes fan than me even. And uh, we weren't going to be able to uh, meet before or necessarily after because our transportation was different. I also didn't necessarily want to hook up with Laura before the show because Laura had uh, kind of indicated to me, I don't know whether she told me directly or whether it kind of came out in bits and pieces that she intended to drop acid at the concert. And I wasn't sure whether she was going to drop acid before the show or during the show. I just, I want to know part of it. So I'm assuming that she got to the concert on time, that she took care of what she wanted to take care of chemically. And then she saw, she saw the show all the way through. So I saw the concert and I had some real thoughts about it because I was expecting this particular performance of the band to be uh, a downer. I I was expecting to be disappointed because a group like that uh, performing long, complex, almost symphonic rock songs needed to have good continuity and the group never did. I mean, unlike uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer, which always seemed to have at least Emerson Lake and Palmer around for at least a while, uh, this group always had lineup changes and I went to see this show expecting to not like the new lineup I'm expecting them to not, frankly, expecting them not to be able to perform the songs that I'd seen just a year before from what I considered to be the classic lineup. So I, uh, I was very impressed. I, I could not believe that this group with uh, the, all those new members with two or three people different, especially in key positions, performed so well. Um, and I, when I actually ran into Laura, she was still sitting in her spot. Now, Yes performed in concert in the round. So if you went to see a Yes concert, back then anyway, instead of the stage being on one end of the auditorium and all the seats being filled out in front of it, Yes put their stage right in the middle of the auditorium, and if you had a seat on the floor, um, you didn't need to worry about your vantage point. In fact, no one in, no one in the entire auditorium ever needed to worry about their vantage point for a Yes show because the stage the band performed on rotated. So you you get your seat. You don't have to worry if you really enjoy the bass player. He's going to come back around. Unfortunately, Laura was on the other side of the stage, so both of us had really great seats. I was 10th row, she was 4th row, but we weren't anywhere near each other. From the -the in-the-round perspective, she was seeing a part of the band that I couldn't see, and I was seeing the the opposite part of the band, because we were just on the opposite side, sort of, of that floor. So after the show, I was kind of you know cruising around, kind of doing the circle on my way out of the building, and I caught her. She was still sitting in her seat in the 4th row. And I went up to her and uh, and I asked her, you know, what she thought of the show. She goes, "Well, I'll let you know when it's over." I <laughs> said, "You'll you'll let me know when it's over." And it dawned on me that you know, if you had blacked completely out for two and a half hours, the very end of this concert might look a lot like the very beginning of the concert. You know, it's not an easy thing to instantaneously tell the difference between roadies putting equipment away versus roadies setting equipment up. And if you get to the concert, you know, an hour or two before it starts and and occupy your seat and soak in the atmosphere, if three hours disappeared on you, you might be in the same place you were before. And because of the drug that she had used and the manner in which she'd used it, again, a very non-scientific methodology, she blacked out and missed the entire show. And I I just thought to myself, that is not a method that works for me. I do not want to be one of those people who has an incredible mind-altering experience And can't remember it. Or if I have a, you know, I I introduce myself to a brand new way of thinking and no one else can ever join me there because I don't know how I got there myself. It, It just doesn't work for me. I got much more out of that Yes concert than she ever would. So I suppose the question is at least for my parents, how could they keep me as a student away from anybody using drugs? And the answer to that question is it was absolutely impossible to think that you could try. What would I have to do? Leave the band? Leave the concert chorus? Leave the National Honor Society? I would have to do all those things and more. Leave the journalism department? Everything to stay away from people who are using drugs. There was not a safe corner in the building because 37% is a fairly pers—it's a pervasive number. And <clears throat> switch- trading all that out for the football team would not have helped. Believe me, would not have helped. Yeah, I guess I don't don't I don't think I was in school during the era depicted by Richard Linklater in his movie Dazed and Confused, but it was it wasn't too much later than that, and certainly that gives you that movie gives you a pretty good idea of kind of how drug usage and the football team kind of played into each other. the The reality was that certain drugs, anyway, were very prevalent in high school. Now, my wife and I have a disagreement about things because I have a outsider's perspective on her high school, and she has an outsider's perspective on mine. My perspective is that the amount of money you have is a greater potential indicator of the cost, expense, and types of drugs you're going to use than anything else. So I want to kind of deal briefly with this idea of gateway drugs and my perspective on gateway drugs. And to do that, I want to first introduce the notion that, um, to me, I saw tobacco as a gateway drug toward marijuana. My parents never accepted that idea because to them, tobacco was a separate issue altogether. It, they acknowledged that it was a drug and it was a drug they didn't want me to use. But for all their talk about you know, marijuana being a gateway drug to cocaine or a gateway drug to heroin or whatever their kind of mentality was, they didn't seem to make the connection that actually tobacco and alcohol were probably more prevalent as gateway drugs for anybody than anything else would be. So I didn't really like this kind of notion of gateway drugs because I knew so many people, particularly at that age, and maybe economics was the only thing controlling them. I'll grant it. But I knew a lot of people, especially at that age, who only used marijuana. Or if they took pills, they only took pills. So that was the thing they did, and it was the only thing they did. And they didn't necessarily take it anywhere else except for perhaps mixing in tobacco and alcohol as well, which in the case of uh, pills... Um, much more dangerous concept than mixing in tobacco and alcohol with marijuana. So you ended up in a place where the culture that I was in at the time, either from church, certainly from the government, was to view all drugs as equally harmful. And this gets us as close to the topic of harm reduction as I'm likely to get. If you want better information about harm reduction, I wholeheartedly recommend a podcast on SimplySyndicated.com called Hooked. It's actually a program that is uh, hosted by two people who have a lot of experience in harm reduction as an industry, and they can certainly give you a lot better information about what it means to deal directly with people who are using dangerous drugs and the methods that we can use as a society if we have the moral courage to use them as a society of getting those people into a better place than they are. Just say no doesn't necessarily work if no is going to throw you into a dangerous state of withdrawal, and just say no for those folk, often quite impossible. If it sounds like I'm speaking against the notion of gateway drugs, that may be fair enough to say, and I'm willing to confess to the idea that I just don't personally have the research to guide me in making a claim about the truth or validity of any of those connections one way or the other. The reality is, I wasn't that much interested in making those connections. Because whether or not there's a statistical correlation that suggests that using this drug is naturally going to lead you to use that one was of zero interest to me when I was in high school. My interest in high school was not using any of them. So I was in a pretty secure place in terms of what I wanted and how I was going to live my life. However, I did strongly object then and still strongly object now to the idea that it's smart to tell people that all drugs are equally dangerous. Let me say this again, because this is a place where I probably stand in firm disagreement to the church that I attended at the time. The church that I attended at the time basically had the attitude, all drugs are bad, therefore all drugs are equally bad, therefore all drugs are equally dangerous. And to me, I think that was the absolutely wrong approach. And again, ties right back into the speech I was trying to give, when my freshman year English class called for me to deliver that kind of coursework because it seemed to me that it was probably very important to actually give people a sense of the gradations of risk and the gradations of danger. And if doing so I had to tell people the difference in the gradations of the high that they would get, well that was a consequence that I was okay with even though my school was very uncomfortable. There's a debate going on today in England and it's telling that this same kind of debate isn't happening here in America. I think it's a bad thing that in America, we're not even having the conversation. So if we're not having the conversation badly, that's not a good credit to us. We're not having the conversation well either. But in England, one of the debates going on is how the uh, laws are used to grade the illegal substances that have been identified in terms of their harmfulness. So again, this whole concept of can we manage harm and how do we manage harm? And essentially, for political reasons more than anything else, the uh, the government is currently either proposing or perhaps they already have decided that they're going to grade the uh, party and rave drug, ecstasy, as being equally harmful or equally dangerous or at least equally illegal to heroin. And it's raised what I find to be a fascinating debate because, again, am I somebody who regularly listens to this podcast hooked? Yes, I am. Why? Why would I even be interested? I am... Not a harm reduction worker. I am not a drug user. I'm not anybody who, thank God, I'm not anybody who is in an intimate relationship with a drug user. So why am I interested? Well, part of the interest is strictly intellectual. And it connects with all the kind of experiences that I had going all the way back to high school. I won't even get into college right now. But um, one of the comments that I heard back in this debate, back and forth, about... You know, what, what should we do with grading these drugs, and why is it a bad thing to say that two drugs are equally harmful when, in fact, they're not? And the concept that has been pushed forward is something called the precautionary principle. And the precautionary principle is basically, if you sort of sum it up and kind of water it down, I guess, is what I'm doing, is to say that if you tell people that two things are equally dangerous, whether they are or not, you're doing a good thing because you're scaring them away from doing the thing we don't want them to do. You know, it's better to tell them that this is just as bad as that, because if they use this, it might be a gateway to that. That sort of concept. In other words, very consistent with the kind of instruction I was getting from my parents way back when. So I intend to express my opinion about the precautionary principle. I'm going to do it in this particular show. I'm going to do it very soon. But first, I want the idea to sort of percolate out there for a moment. I want you to think about where you stand with it, because the idea would be, do I, as a parent, want my kid using ecstasy? Absolutely not. Do I want them using marijuana or heroin? Absolutely not. Would I be a hypocrite if I pretended that those things were all equally harmful? Well, yes I would. So is my opinion simply the idea that I I want to stay away from hypocrisy? Or is my idea a touch more Christian than that? So I want to bring in my religion. I want to bring in a moral perspective from my personal faith. And while I do that, I want to come back later to this idea of whether the precautionary principle is good enough whether it makes sense, whether it's good risk management. But to do it, let me sort of introduce kind of some ideas from from my own personal faith and kind of bring, bring the church into it just a touch. I'm a big believer in the connection between the concepts of harm reduction and the concepts of evangelism. Now, this is going to strike a lot of people very odd because... The religious right in America is very much a just say no entity. Um, it's politically conservative, so there's nothing that the Reagan administration ever said or did that's going to bother them, for the most part. But to me, I uh, actually once, in a, in a Sunday school class, just sort of floated out the idea and said, hey, you know what? What about something Americans don't even consider doing that is actually happening in some European countries? And then there's other European countries and and perhaps even countries elsewhere in the world that are discussing these concepts and thinking about them. And I just sort of threw out the idea of, you know, needle exchanges. What about the idea of controlling the risks of people harming themselves by using drugs poorly, by using bad technique, or the risk of the transmission of the HIV virus through um, sharing of needles and other things? Because IV drug use, illegal drug use, is one of the main, main ways of spreading the virus that can become AIDS. So what about that idea of needle exchanges? What about that idea of trying to reduce harm by taking people who are going to use drugs anyway and making sure that they're not leaving biohazard in, in school parking lots and in playgrounds, and that at the very least um, those people can be helped to live long enough and as well as possible so that if at some point it is possible to get them to walk away from their behavior... And give up the illegal substances, that that they can be reached, that they don't die first. That you know, I, in in the uh, in the world of abortion, the abortion debate, I do not have a to hell with the woman attitude. To me, if a woman is in a uh, very severe medical situation and carrying an unborn child to term is going to threaten her health, I don't consider that to be just bad luck. Roll the dice, see what happens. I think that you can make decisions based on the woman's situation being unique, and therefore. Worthy of respect, but I threw out this idea from the harm reduction perspective to say, hey, do some of these European nations just have it wrong, or would the idea of uh, safe drug use advice and needle exchanges being a good idea? Not that anybody in that particular industry is trying to drum up more customers. I would propose it as essentially being a nonprofit kind of a concept, where you spend only as much as you have to spend, and you're actually trying to reduce the number of people who need your service. And generally speaking, that was resoundingly rejected. It was hard to find anybody in a Sunday school sort of setting, uh, you know, a Sunday morning between between two worship services or right after worship service or what have you, where a small group gets together and discusses either an issue of the day or goes through some sort of a Bible study approach. In that context, you couldn't find a single, I couldn't find a single supporter for the idea. And what I told him was this. How does it differ fundamentally as an idea from evangelism? What is the main difference between a harm reduction approach in the realm of drug use and evangelism? And the main thing is probably legality versus illegality. Kind of going back to my parents' idea that drugs was one thing and that alcohol was different, even though alcohol was clearly a drug and perhaps a more harmful drug than some of the others. If you take the legality question out of it, though, just sort of imagine a different set of laws in play in a different legal approach to the issue how is it different and frankly i have had a hard time finding people who make the connection that i do with this what's similar so i'll share it with you here's what's similar the idea behind evangelical christianity is that no matter what it is you're doing no matter where you are in your life no matter what mistakes you've made no matter what trouble you're in the gospel is for you that there is nothing uh, in the front door of the church or between the front door of the church and the front door of the sanctuary that stops you from going in, hearing the gospel message, receiving the good news, being brought into the faith, being offered communion, being offered baptism, being given a Bible. Nothing's stopping you. In fact, the basic Christian concept is that all of us are sinners, that all of us fall short of the glory of God, that none of us are, quote unquote, worthy of the grace of Jesus Christ none of us and therefore it makes no sense to talk about you know a concept like well and when somebody has cleaned up their act then we'll share the gospel with them Christians who are actively evangelical expect to be sharing the gospel with people who haven't cleaned up their act in fact i worry the most about people who claim that they've cleaned their act up first quote unquote and now they're ready to hear the gospel message because the sin they're probably suffering from the most is pride, if not an open state of delusion. So I said, hey, do we as a church put up a barrier that says, hey, when you've given up your lustful thoughts, when you've given up your, your wrathful rages, when you've given up your uh, greed and your ambition and your avarice, then we'll tell you about Jesus Christ. But we're not going to tell you anything about Jesus Christ till you've cleaned up your act. Nothing could be further from the truth. In terms of describing how it is that Christians function, so what I told him was this: I said, "I see a great connection between true evangelism and harm reduction, in that both of them are trying to keep somebody who's on a dangerous path alive long enough to hear the truth. If somebody wanted to attend the church that I go to, and granted, I'm a Protestant, so I don't have a big list of rules from from Rome to follow. I don't have an elaborate liturgy, you know, from, I'm not, I'm neither uh, Eastern Orthodox nor Roman Catholic. So I've got a different paradigm as a Protestant. But as a Protestant, I'm pretty much free to say yes. If you are an IV drug user who's, you know, you know living with your girlfriend, who's gotten three women pregnant and you don't even know who your kids are, you're more than welcome to come join me in church on Sunday. I want you to join me in church on Sunday. I want you to be in as many Sunday services as you possibly can I want you in my Sunday school class and I want you to come as regularly as you possibly can and it's gonna take a period of time before you are actually attending any of those events and even hear the gospel the gospel may be spoken to you but it may be quite a long time before you actually hear it because there's a lot of noise going on in your life and there's a certain amount of language barrier a certain probably even a cultural barrier going on in the communication process in your typical church anyway but I would like for you to be in the process of being ready to hear that gospel message so that at some point we keep you alive long enough to hear the truth. Harm reduction at its core is simply the idea that we want the person to stay alive long enough, to stay healthy long enough, that when they are ready to kick the habit, they can do it instead of being just another victim. Okay, so you may find that to be fairly radical uh, for from a perspective perspective on what an evangelical Christian or what a Protestant Christian thinks about harm reduction. And I will grant you that, at least based on my own perspective with my own Sunday school class, I'm kind of in a minority. There's a lot of people who feel very differently about it. But I think their difference isn't truly biblical. The difference is the idea that there's good people and bad people, and the bad people have to stay out. Whereas the gospel is, Jesus Christ was a good man. The rest of us are some shade of bad. Most of us are a pretty big shade of bad. And the only way you can ever get good is try to introduce all of us who are bad to the good person. So, yeah, you know, I think that Jesus would be much more open to a harm reduction model than Nancy Reagan would. Let me answer the question that I've asked us to linger on, though, about the precautionary principle. Because I've got a quote from a professor of pharmacology at the University College of London in the uh, from the British Medical Journal where David Calcoun has uh, pointed out the danger of using the precautionary principle, especially if the precautionary principle is being used to form a national drug policy, Um, I would say that it's probably even there as a danger from a parental drug policy. And I'm just going to quote him, I'm going to bounce my ideas off of his quote, and then we'll, you know, for now, set aside the idea of drugs. The precautionary principle can result in harm to people. Perhaps the reason for including ecstasy with heroin in Class A was to make people think that ecstasy was as dangerous as heroin. It's not true, but it is precautionary. But it is just as likely that people will conclude that heroin is as safe as ecstasy. That's the danger of lying, however good your motives. That's a quote from uh, Professor David Calhoun. So, my perspective, very consistent with his, perhaps a restatement of his, but maybe worth restating. There is no guarantee that you can stop a kid from using ecstasy. If you don't tell a kid what ecstasy is, what it does, what it looks like, where you're most likely to get presented to it, um, perhaps even some ideas on the, the right way to say no to that without ostracizing you know, your, uh, your circle of friends with a clique you happen to be stuck with at the time, you can't guarantee that that's not going to happen. But here's the trick. If you lie to a, uh, to a child and tell a child that ecstasy is every bit as addictive and dangerous as heroin, and the kid figures out, perhaps unintentionally, Maybe even just because somebody slipped them a Mickey, if they figure out that ecstasy is actually not as dangerous as they were told, will they then conclude that heroin must not be as dangerous as they were told either. And that pretty much hits the nail on the head. I will let this question, the precautionary principle, lie on one quote from one individual. And I'm going kind to of drag us back to religion here. And I apologize for, to people who may find that a little bit annoying But there is one guiding principle that ultimately is biblical here, and that's the concept that the truth will set you free. If you've got a choice between lying to your kids about what it means for this substance to be in use or what that drug does or what these two drugs mean relative to each other, if you're in the habit of lying to your kids about it, maybe that's okay, maybe it's not. But it is certainly not biblical because a wise man... In my opinion, one of the wisest men who's ever lived said, The truth will set you free. The Pollyanna Calgo Records Podcast. Hi, this is Tony Pucci, host of the Pollyanna Calgo Records Podcast. I'd like to invite you to join me each week as I play 12 great indie tracks from talented artists from around the world. The Pollyanna Calgo Records Podcast is now part of the Simply Syndicated Podcasting Network. Please visit SimplySyndicated.com to subscribe to the feed, participate in the forum, and check out all of their great shows. The Pollyanna Calgo Records Podcast, Indie music at its finest. Our different drummer this week is Stephen D. Levitt. And if you've read his book, Freakonomics A Rogue Economist Explores the Hidden Side of Everything, you may have already guessed why. Stephen D. Levitt teaches economics at the University of Chicago. He has received the John Bates Clark Medal, which is awarded every two years to the best American economist under the age of 40. In other words, a highly regarded and perhaps even highly decorated economist. He describes himself this way, though I just don't know very much about the field of economics. I'm not good at math. I don't know a lot about econometrics. And I also don't know how to do theory. This from a man who, again, an honored, economist. But he's also described himself as somebody who's not that interested in finance. Not going to be the person you turn to to find out what what we should do with our monetary policy. Not the guy who lives next door who's going to help you out with your taxes. He instead tries to look inside for details in some of the most curious places. I've heard him described as an economist who favors his own offbeat list of micro-curiosities. This is a description, actually, from his co-author in these book ventures. Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics, Stephen J. Dubner. Now, Stephen J. Dubner is a New York Times and New Yorker um, author and reporter who I think actually hooked up with uh, Stephen D. Levitt for a interview and helped bring him out of his shell, at least from a publication perspective. So when it comes to being a different drummer, I think probably the best thing I can do is talk about how much I enjoy them from the perspective of how they connect with my perspective on consequences and incentives and to do so i'm going to refer to something that is levitt like although i haven't necessarily heard it on his podcast i have uh, found the free economics podcast and i'm enjoying it again both levitt and dubner working together there and i've downloaded a lot of them but uh, at least the lot that's currently available but i'm not currently up to speed so i may be hitting a topic that they've already hit but if not then hey this is just me don't blame them I recently have had the uh, occasion to take a few plane flights. This has been a busier year, uh, busier year in the travel department for me than um, than usual, I would say. And one of the things I've noticed from this year versus maybe even just a year or so ago is how we've changed the way we manage luggage. Now I'm going to hit this from the perspective of incentives because that's the thing I find most interesting about about Levitt's work. He takes a look at the the econo- the economics of small decisions and looks at them from the perspective of correlation and regression, but also from the perspective of incentives. In my mind, and this perhaps is uncharitable, but in my mind, I imagine an airline executive figuring out how much money to charge per bag of luggage and multiplying that number against the average numbers of bags of luggage that his baggage handlers you know, handle on any given plane flight, blowing that math out and deciding that that is the new number that's going to tell them what their profit margins are. That by charging $20, 30 40 $50 a bag in some cases, they're going to increase their profits by X amount. I certainly hope that the air- people running the airlines in this country and in this world are smarter than that. But you never know. Because if they had figured that the number of bags carried onto airplanes would remain constant in the midst of the increase, and therefore all of it would come back to increased revenue and increased profit, well, they were sorely mistaken. And they certainly don't understand incentives. And if they wanted to take a step in the right direction, they might want to read one of the Levin and Dubner books and help get themselves educated. Because one of the behaviors that really amused me, actually it annoyed me first, and then later it amused me, was how my own behavior changed and how I saw the consistency of my change in behavior cut across all the other people. Most of us stopped checking bags at all. If you're going to make you know, a three, four day trip to the West coast. And you're, even if you're going to be doing some public speaking and you really need to look your best, do you really want to check that bag? Spend 40, 50 bucks doing it, not have as much of a guarantee that the bag's going to make it to the destination with you anyway, or would you prefer to buy a smaller um, piece of luggage that will fit on top of the plane that you can carry on with you and by carrying it on, avoid all those extra charges. So couple things you see Uh, we've already been pretty comfortable with the idea that your average hotel chain at least a nice hotel chain is going to provide an ironing board an iron and a hairdryer so if you're not carrying those kind of things onto the plane with you then you pretty much can pack your clothing as tightly as you want to just kind of surrendering the fact that when you land you're going to be doing some hanging and ironing so once you give into that idea that the notion of the big bulky hanging suitcase where you can put your suits and put your dress shirts in there and then you know when you land where you're going to land they're already going to be fine you sort of you have to give that up and say no (laughs) nothing's going to be neatly pressed nothing's going to be fine when i get to my hotel i'm going to have to handle that but what you've noticed now is that the number of bags being checked dramatically lower than what it's ever been in the past and the flight attendants have the biggest headache in, in probably their memory, for some of them, maybe the biggest headache of their career, handling the all the additional luggage. Because in the past, you might have people who were you know, the wife would bring on a purse, the husband might bring on a laptop, and everything else would go underneath the plane. Now, families are doing whatever they can to pack and bring everything on top of the plane. And the flights that I have been on, the instructions are different. Now, Flight attendants are giving particular direction on which which items of carry-on luggage to put above and which ones to put under your seat, when it's appropriate to put a coat up there and when it's inappropriate to put a coat up there, whether to put the wheels in or the wheels out to try to maximize the size of those compartments, because it didn't take long for the flight attendants to figure out that they were putting a lot more luggage on top of the plane than ever before, and it was taking people boarding planes a lot longer to get on those planes than ever before. Now... If the airlines did not anticipate this response, shame on them. Because it was logical and inevitable that this would occur. Even people who travel as rarely as I do, and are usually pretty relaxed about it when I do, uh, I pretty much didn't have any good reason not to just take a bag this normal size that I've done years in the past and check it. But unlike years in the past, this year I chose not to. And a lot of it was the incentive of avoiding that bag fee. So. Worst case scenario, do we have airlines who have labor employed to handle bags on conveyors going into the luggage compartment of a plane, who have less work to do, and maybe at some point be facing you know, layoffs or labor unrest or redeployments of sorts, while at the same time the concept of getting that plane up in the air on time is being challenged by how long it's taking the flight attendants above the plane to manage the luggage that is being brought on that historically has never been brought on before. I'm not going to raise a safety issue because of of a concern that I've got because I really believe that the engineers in the airline industry are probably the most proactive and forward-thinking of anybody in the organization or certainly more proactive and forward-thinking than management tends to be. But the other question in the back of my mind is, is there a potential negative consequence in putting all this luggage in a place where the plane didn't necessarily think it would be and leaving a compartment designed to hold all the luggage a lot more empty than the engineers originally thought it would be. On the one hand, there's a financial relationship to this economic question. Did the airlines believe they were going to raise a lot more revenue than they did when all they've effectively accomplished is reducing the number of bags that are checked? On the other hand, does shifting the weight from one part of the plane to another part of the plane have any actual impact in the way the plane functions when it's supposed to do its primary task of moving people from place to place? Again, I don't raise these questions because I think that there's any danger out there. I raise these questions because of the exact types of questions that Stephen D. Levitt would be asking from his view of the economics of incentive. My favorite section of the Freakonomics books involves the almost unwitting research compiled on the economics of drug-dealing gangs in Chicago. Levitt emphasizes the importance of... Of understanding incentives as a means of taking positive social change I would say that most of our national anti-drug policies fail right there <clears throat> that we're not as interested in figuring out the way to make the positive change and we're more interested in calling a bad thing bad that's certainly true when I raised the question in my church about whether or not it makes the harm reduction made some sort of sense Because no matter how it might logically apply to what the Bible teaches, no matter what sort of wisdom it may have from an overarching international set of drug policies, it violated the concept of how important it is psychologically for certain people to be able to call a bad thing bad and not invest in it. Not invest in solving the problem, certainly not invest in perpetuating the problem, even if temporarily perpetuating a problem is the ultimate solution itself. So the way that Stephen Dubner wrote this in, his, uh, in his, his contribution to the Freakonomics book was in answering the question of, if drug dealers make so much money, if drug dealing is so lucrative, why do so many dealers still live with their mothers? And that's actually the core of the, uh, my favorite part of the book, where Levitt discusses the, the actions of a scholar that he met along the way, who almost unwittingly found himself, Kind of working with the drug gang in Chicago uh, for his own work, monitoring the economics of their enterprise to generate a graduate level thesis paper. And for their part, I think, kind of giving the head of the criminal organization a sense that he hadn't wasted his years in college and that, that he still had something to offer. So you have the only person in this drug organization making any money it was essentially the person we might call the kingpin. And the kingpin was, you know, college educated understood economics understood budgeting and for whatever reason had decided that he would keep meticulous financial data on all of the drug dealing transactions that went on from the street level dealer to the large what we might call cartel purchases and this information was maintained on a large set of notebooks that due to a set of circumstances described in the book ultimately landed in the hands of the guy writing the thesis and later at harvard university when the the two men met That information, you know, found its way from the person who compiled the data or gathered the compiled data to Levitt, and from there, turned into a scholarly journal paper, and from there, landed in the book for economics. Here's how Dubner describes it, and I really love his turn of phrase. This is the the first time that such priceless financial data had fallen into an economist's hands. (laughs) The data falling into an economist's hands. Affording an unparalleled analysis of a heretofore uncharted criminal enterprise, and the results of that information very insightful. Levitt's made a habit of looking for answers in places where most people are not all that interested in the question. For most people, if you presented the concept that the abortion rate in America falling largely on people who have unwanted pregnancies, falling largely on women who perhaps are economically or socially not going to be equipped to raise children in an ideal way, either because they're unmarried or because of their poor economic situation or because of a violent home life, Um, what's the relationship of abortion to the drop in crime rate from roughly 1994 to roughly 2006? Those are the kinds of questions that most economists would flatly reject. It's not a question that they even want to answer. And I would say, to the degree that you might see that same response to this drug dealer question, The concept of, you know, why do drug dealers still live with their moms? It takes somebody like Levitt to have the courage to ask those questions. And so I'm very happy to cite Stephen D. Levitt as a different drummer this week, this time coming from the field of economics. Or is it exactly economics? I'm probably going to categorize him as a political theorist because he does economic study in a way that most economists would reject. And yet he probably would reject my concept that his work is truly political theory either. I've noticed lately that I've encountering topics that I think I don't have that much to say about and I'm surprised to a degree at the length of some of the shows where it seems that somebody who's managed to always just say no to drugs and has almost nothing relevant and experiential to say about drug use itself um, still has maybe quite a bit of opinion about how we ought to handle it and I think if one thing jumps out at me it's that I wish that there were more people who truly had taken Nancy Reagan's road and just said no to drugs would still care passionately about the issue and care passionately about those who have not taken the same path that they've taken. That the answer to just say no is not to praise those people who've succeeded in an abstinence course and shun those people who've failed. The answer to drugs is whether you've said yes or whether you've said no, to find the way forward. And the way forward doesn't tend to be around the issue. It doesn't tend to be a right-wing detour. Sometimes the best way to get through these issues is to actually go through them. If you've got a different opinion on the matter, I'm always open to your comments, but I think I'll conclude for now by saying, thanks for listening. Kevin McLeod.